I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 5 together, but I do want to read verses 1 to 9, just so we have uh, some of the context, a little more of the context. So uh, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. As we read this, obviously, I think um, it's safe to say we are reminded that In this letter, Paul is dealing with something that is incredibly important. It's a very serious matter. He's dealing with corruption of the one and only gospel, a corruption that is labeled here as desertion of God and of his grace. It is such a thing that it brings with it a pronouncement of a curse from the Apostle Paul upon those who are peddling this serious error. So we're reminded of just how important this matter is that that, uh, we find in this letter. But before we get to verses 6 to 9, we're going to cover that next week. Um, Today we're looking at verses 3 to 5 with the greeting of, of, of Paul, the greeting of this book to the Galatians. And this greeting that we find in verses 3 to 5, it's a little more than just a hello, just saying hi. Uh, Many call this kind of a formulaic greeting, this here here it's grace to you and peace. We find this sort of a formula in basically all of Paul's letters and a number of other letters in the New Testament. Uh, This this, uh, kind of uh, formulaic greeting is is often referred to as a prayer wish or a a prayer desire. Uh, That is, Paul is greeting them with an expression of his desire for them, a, a prayer for them. So we sometimes, maybe for signing off a letter or email, we might say, God bless you to somebody. And of course, what that is, is it's may God bless you. It's an expression of our desire that God would do this thing for you. It's something of a prayer mixed with a a wish, a desire, a hopefulness for that that person. And with Paul, uh, this greeting is not a mindless sort of formality at the outset. So we sometimes do greet or say goodbye in a in a maybe a mindlessly formulaic way. Hey, how's it going? And we, we maybe didn't even we just it's another way of saying hi. Uh, but Paul is not uh, just just doing this out of some um, you know uh, formality. Rather, what we find here, and what we find in 
Really, all of Paul's letters in his introductions, in the introductory material, we find um, a foretaste of what is to come. We find often the main themes of that letter right there in Paul's greeting and then typically in his uh, thanksgiving and prayer section that follows the initial uh, greeting of grace. But of course, in the book of Galatians, uh, we do not find an extended greeting. We do not find an extended prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, This is unique in Paul's writings. Typically, Paul does launch out into some expression of thanksgiving for the saints that he's writing to. But in Galatians, as we read in verse 6, he just jumps right into his astonishment at their abandonment of the good news. And so again, that, even that right there reminds us of how urgent this matter is for the Apostle Paul. So even though uh, we don't have the extended prayer in Galatians, uh, we do find when we look at verses 3 to 5, we do find that we have uh, the main themes of the book of Galatians. He mentions the central theme, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he expresses here in verses 3 to 5 Paul's desire that the people of Galatia, that the churches, that the Christians would continue in the gospel. They would continue to believe in it, that they would remain in it. And so uh, as we go through this, there's going to be three points to our outline. Uh, First is the benefits of the gospel, which we find in verse 3. And we'll look at the ground of the gospel in verse 4. And then the end of the gospel in verse 5. So the benefits, the ground, and the end of the gospel. So first of all, the benefits of the gospel. Uh, Verse 3 again says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, in, in, in greeting them with these words, grace to you and peace from God, Paul is expressing his prayer for them, his desire for them, that they would indeed continue in this grace and peace, that they would indeed, that God would indeed keep them in his grace and that they would remain with his peace upon them. Uh, grace and peace, of course, are core benefits of the gospel itself, and they are central to the theme of this book of Galatians. As we saw last week, and as we read in verse 6, the grace of the gospel is precisely what is being undermined by the Judaizers. And so if this message, this gospel message of grace is destroyed and undermined, then the result of that is that peace with God is not attained. There is no peace with God. That's what, this, is, this is what's at stake here. If you do away with grace, you're doing away with the peace with God. It's no gospel at all that is no good news. That's what we'll get to a little more next week. But again, grace and peace then are, are fundamental blessings of the good news of the gospel. Again, the gospel is a message that though you are a sinner who is justly condemned under God's holy, just, condemning wrath for your sins, there is nevertheless grace from God, which brings with it peace with him, that would take you out from under his just wrath and into his loving heavenly kingdom. And as we'll see, this grace and this peace is secured and purchased by Christ Jesus. The word grace is often, you've probably heard it defined as being unmerited favor. I think that's good. I think that's helpful. It is something, it is a favor that is unmerited. It is not, 
hey, you've done just enough, and now I will show you favor. You've done just the right thing, or you've just enough good that outweighs the bad, and now I will show you favor. You've accomplished something, and now I will reward you with a, with a, with a payment of something. That's not how this works. It is unmerited. It is something that cannot be merited. It cannot be earned. It is grace. It is unmerited favor. It means we can do nothing to earn it. And truly, truly, the grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ is just this. Our own works and actions do not make us worthy of peace. We don't do something that then makes God, it kind of forces his hand now in which he will show you favor. Nothing we do makes us worthy of God and of his favor. Rather, when it is bestowed upon somebody, it is done graciously. It is done freely by Almighty God out of an act of his grace. Ephesians chapter 2, which we read some of uh, earlier, is very helpful, I think, and clear in explaining this. It describes sinners, in verse 1, as being dead in our trespasses and sins. We're just face down in the water. There is no life whatsoever. There's nothing we can do to revive ourselves. This is the picture of our sinful condition in Scripture. And yet Ephesians 2 goes on to say that even in that state, with nothing we could do about it, God, for those who believe, uh, Paul says there, made us alive together with Christ. And then as he's saying that, He sort of inserts this thing. He's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then in verse 8, of course, he says, For by grace, he repeats himself, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, that is, this saving grace and the instrument of faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift. That is, it's grace. It's the gracious gift of God. It is not the result of works so that no one may boast. This is what is at stake in this letter to the Galatians. Of course, God requires faith in order for one to be forgiven. But even this faith comes as a gracious gift of God when a sinner receives that internal call of God through the A pronouncement of the gospel that there is forgiveness of sins. Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. Everyone who believes in him will be forgiven and granted eternal life. And when God uh, regenerates the heart that hears that news such that they um, believe Christ, believe in the crucified, risen Christ, that, that work that God does in the heart is what enables faith graciously, kindly, out of God's free choosing and favor. When the good news of Christ's death and resurrection is proclaimed to sinners, we proclaim his death and resurrection, and then then we call men, women, children to repent of your sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess that you indeed are sinful, that you deserve God's just and holy wrath for your sins on account of your transgressions of his law, But Christ has died. He has risen from the dead. Believe in Christ. Trust in him. We call men and women to repent and believe the gospel. And when someone responds that way, and they do confess, they do agree with what you have said, with what has been proclaimed, with the gospel. They do entrust themselves to Christ Jesus. 
When they do that, they are indeed saved. And yet scripture is very clear that when someone responds in that way, that they were the recipient of God's grace even prior to their exercise of that faith. And when God pours out such grace on a person, on a sinner, and they believe, it brings with it then peace with him. All human beings are born as sinners. We are born at enmity with God, as we saw in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 3 then says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're dead in trespasses under God's wrath, not in fellowship with him, not having peace with him, but at enmity with him. His enemies even, alienated from God on account of our sins. And the gospel says that the Son of God has taken on flesh. He has come to earth, the eternal Son of God, taken to himself flesh, and he has died, he has offered himself to make propitiation for sinners. That is, he came in order to satisfy God's wrath by satisfying God's just demands against us for our sins. And we will get to more of that in just a moment. But the effect then of Christ's death is that a person who believes in him, who receives God's grace and believes this good news, trusts Christ, now has peace with God. The punishment for their own sins that they deserve was paid for by Jesus Christ. And now because of that, God pardons the sinner. No longer is there enmity. The demands of his justice against the sinner's sinner for their sins has been paid for. And there is no more enmity. There is now, in fact, peace with God. Romans 5.1 says this very thing. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace indeed come from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God graciously makes peace with sinners. Again, the good news of the gospel message, and of course gospel just means good news, is about peace with God. That there is peace with God, freely and graciously bestowed by him. And this is why it is that justification by faith alone is such an important battleground. If the gospel is not entirely gracious, then it is no gospel. This is what we're going to see very clearly in the letter of Galatia, to the Galatians. And so we must never lose sight of this gospel of grace. It is right and good, of course, to hold before the world a perishing and lost and utterly confused world, the law of God. Mankind needs to hear this. They need to understand what is right and wrong according to God and his standards. They need to understand that they are indeed sinful. And we, of course, know this truth. A man suppresses the truth about God and unrighteousness. We understand that. 
We know that sin is transgressions of the law. We know that the penalty for sin is death and that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment and it is severe judgment from a holy God. It is right for us, it is good for us to proclaim God's law and his standard of absolute perfection and righteousness before mankind to warn of judgment to come. It is good to speak clearly and unashamedly for that which is true and good and also, on the other hand, to speak clearly about that which is sin, that which is evil. But of course, we must also ask ourselves, why is it that we speak to these matters? Of course, we do not simply do this to condemn people. We do not simply do this to win arguments. We do not even simply do this to to try to make better laws in our land, though that is a good pursuit. And I think we would all desire to have good and righteous laws that reflect uh, God's moral law in our land. We would certainly agree that that is a good thing. But even that is not the primary reason why we should be proclaiming God's law to the world. Proclaiming God's law and and telling people that they are sinners is not in and of itself the gospel. It is necessary part of it because it presents the problem to mankind for which the gospel is the only solution. We point out sin, we proclaim God's law, we reveal sin to people, we point out the sinfulness and lost condition of humanity around us, Ultimately, that we might then proclaim the good news that though their sins are horrendous, whatever those sins might be before Almighty God, God is nevertheless amazingly gracious. There is forgiveness of those sins, and it comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is secured and purchased by Christ Jesus. This is the next part that we then proclaim to a lost world. I was looking for it earlier and I could not find it, but somewhere in one of the books I've read recently, uh, there was a, well, it was a while ago, it was probably a year or more ago, but there was talking about revival and and preaching and, and and a preacher just made the point. Someone who had preached, somebody who had seen many people converted under his ministry and under his preaching uh, was just making the point that it's, it's actually fairly easy to just preach law to people. Because he said, you don't really have to have a whole lot of love for people. You can do that while you're kind of angry. You just preach you're sinful and you're worthy of God's condemnation. We can do that even when we're grouchy. He's, but he talked about how it's much, much harder to preach Christ well, to preach the loveliness of God and, and the goodness of Christ well, because Uh, To do that does require some measure of compassion and love for people, that you would desire that they would turn from that sin, that they would turn from their wretchedness and, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be able to proclaim to people, not simply, oh, and Jesus died, but to actually proclaim the, 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 the greatness of Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, who in humility took on flesh, not for his own gain, but in order to rescue fallen sinners who have committed vile sins against the eternal God who warrant hell for that, nevertheless came and substituted himself and offered himself on behalf of sinful people. And God is gracious. He's willing to, he, he will pardon all who look upon the Son in faith. 
Of course, the, 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 the greatness of what Christ has done for sinners is not, we, we can say these things, but even as I say it, I'm very aware of how it sounds in one sense so short of, of, of what it ought to be when it's proclaimed. Because we truly deserve simply for God to wipe us off the map for our sins. And yet not only that, he has made a way for sinners to come out from under his wrath and to be made children of God, to be given an eternal inheritance. And it is all entirely a gift that God bestows upon sinners in his grace. So the benefits of the gospel, grace and peace with God. Secondly, the ground of the gospel. What is grace and peace grounded upon? What makes this peace with God possible? I've already jumped ahead and and talked about this, but let's read this again. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. The grounds of this grace and peace is Christ's offering of himself for our sins in accordance with the will of the Father. There's a lot in verse 4. Let's just, first of all, notice uh, the unity and the love of the Father and the Son in accomplishing salvation. We're told here that Christ gave himself. This implies a willingness on behalf of the Lord Jesus. He was not forced into this. He gladly, Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He, he came gladly, willingly, uh, not reluctantly, not under compulsion to save sinners. Consider that. If you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and you think of all your sins and, and how horrific they are and your, the guilt you feel for those sins, to know that Christ came willingly to die for those sins and lovingly. Offered his body for sinners. There have been those who then try to pit what Jesus has accomplished against the Father, as if the Father's will is to simply crush all every sinner, but Jesus is loving and kind, and he steps in to almost subvert the Father's will and plan and, 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 and make it so that people can be actually forgiven. But this is not at all what the Bible teaches. This is not certainly what we read here. We read something completely otherwise. We see that Christ's willing sacrifice was according to the will of our God and Father. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And of course, later in Galatians 4, verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Scripture reveals that salvation is a unified work of love between all members of the Trinity. The Spirit is not mentioned here. In Hebrews 9.14, we're told that Christ offered himself without blemish to God through the eternal Spirit. When it says here that Christ gave himself for our sins, it is, of course, speaking of his death and resurrection. That's He gave himself in that sense he came, he lived his life, but then he died and he rose again. 
He gave himself for our sins. What that is saying, of course, is he gave himself on behalf of our sins or on behalf of, on our behalf because of our sins. That's what that means. He gave himself for our sins. He's doing it on our behalf because of our sins. And this is describing what is called penal substitutionary atonement or penalty substitution. That is, Christ substituted in for sinners to take their penalty on their behalf. Of course, again, as we've said, the penalty arises from our violations of God's law and God's holiness, which demands that every sin be punished with judgment. It would not be just of Almighty God to simply look the other way when sin is committed. So with the presence of sin and in light of God's holiness, there's no way around, there seems to be no way around this problem. There's no way for us to fix this. There's nothing that we can do to overcome our sin. God must punish it. Even if you could achieve perfection today, you would still have past sins. And so the only solution is the one that our triune God has enacted. Again, the eternal Son took on flesh. He has fulfilled the obligations of God's law, which every man and woman has failed miserably at. We are fallen in Adam, and we've committed our own transgressions in thought, in word, in deed. But Jesus has come, he has fulfilled, he has obeyed God's law on behalf of those he came to save. And then the perfect son of God gave himself as an unblemished sacrifice by dying on the cross for those sinners. There on the cross, the sins of his people were laid upon him and he drank the cup of the wrath of God for those sins. He substituted in to do this. Of course, he rose again from the dead in victory over sin and death. His sacrifice was acceptable. The penalty for sin is death, but Jesus has conquered that. And all of this was the Father's will. It was accomplished by the Son on behalf of all those that the Father gives to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 lays out this exchange, this substitution it says, for our sake, he, speaking of the Father, God, I should say God, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. So he's perfect, blemish-free, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When one believes in Christ, they are justified. It means they're declared or accounted righteous. This is so because Christ has taken our sins, he's paid the debt for them, so that we might be forgiven, no longer do we have debt before God, and as we read just now, we in turn receive his perfect righteousness, the righteousness of God credited to our account as a gracious gift. There's no other way, there's no other way to solve man's problem of sin and our complete and utter lack of righteousness. The work of Christ Jesus is the ground of the gospel and its blessing to us. 
God can justly and does justly and graciously pardon sinners because payment has been made. Justice, his justice has been satisfied by Christ. And so he's not simply looking the other way. He's not pretending it never happened or saying it's no big deal that we've sinned. He's not sweeping it under the rug. Rather, it's all being placed for his people, for all who believe in Christ, all placed upon the Son, and he pays the penalty for those sins. And so peace is made with God because of what Christ has done. In verse 4, the purpose of Christ's offering is said to be in order to deliver us from the present evil age. He offered himself to deliver us from this present evil age. So if we back up again to before a person is in Christ, believing in Christ, we know again from Ephesians 2 that we are by nature, that is by our fallen human nature, children of wrath. We are born sons and daughters of Adam. We are fallen in him. And we go on to then commit sins. Ephesians 2, 1 to 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So prior to being in Christ, prior to belonging to Christ by faith, we are as sinners at home, if you will, in this fallen sinful world at home in this evil age, as he calls it here. We're under the sway of the devil. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This unbelieving world is under his sway. But the root of this problem is man's sinfulness. That God must punish sinners, violators of his law. And this is the thing that we could say, give Satan his real power over sinners. So Satan is obviously more powerful of a being than, than you or I. We affirm that. But, he, but when it comes to God, it's not like Satan's power over his creatures is that Satan is really, really, really strong and, and God is you know, comparable or they're really close and it's a really close battle. What's going to happen? That's not, the, God can just end Satan in an instant. That's what, that's what a mighty fortress is getting at. One little word shall fell him. This is, not a, this is not actually like good and evil are equal forces or something. God is God and Satan is still a creature. Satan's hold over sinners is ultimately really because of man's sin and God's holiness. Satan tempts mankind to sin and man, through Adam, fell into sin, and now the curse of sin is upon everybody. And now man is doomed because God is holy and must punish them. And so how do we come out from under this power of Satan, as it is said here, as it is described in Scripture? Again, it is through Christ's substitutionary death, paying the penalty for our sins, satisfying that justice of God. And so God can justly pardon sinners. We are freed from any power and any claim Satan might have over us. We are delivered from the bondage of this present evil age. 
Bible speaks of this age, from the fall of Adam until the return of Christ. It speaks of the age that is to come, the eternal and glorified state. And Christians, by Christ's penalty substitution, are rescued from this evil age. We belong, really, to the age to come. We are those who are spiritually, through faith, united to Christ Jesus. Again, appealing to Ephesians 2, he says there, God has made us alive together with Christ. And then verse 6 says, And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a present reality, according to Paul. It's a spiritual reality. We can't see it. We can't touch it. Physically, I'm standing here. But he's saying spiritually, we are raised and seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. We, through faith, are delivered from this kingdom of darkness. We are brought into the kingdom of light. We belong ultimately to the age to come. And we experience this now in part, but not yet in fullness. The age to come is breaking into this age now. And when people believe the gospel, we are freed from the destruction of this age. We believe in Christ. We are a part of God's kingdom. We are his children. And it awaits a full and final fulfillment of this salvation when Christ will consummate his kingdom in the coming age. Christ's work in accordance with the will of the Father is the ground of our salvation. We experience these blessings of salvation because of what Christ has done for us. And and throughout Galatians, we will see, as is affirmed, Elsewhere, throughout the scriptures, we do not contribute to that. We do not do that ourselves. God graciously gives such a gift to sinners. And this all leads logically to the third and final point, the the end of the gospel. The end of the gospel. By end, I mean the goal or final ultimate aim. Paul says Christ's offering of himself was according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The salvation of sinners has its ultimate end in the glory of God. God is the first and best of beings, and all glory in the matter of redemption belongs to him. The gospel is a gift of God's grace, bringing peace between sinner and almighty God, and it is his plan. It is according to his will, as we read, and it is secured by the eternal Son of God who has offered his own self on behalf of sinners. Again, sinners bring nothing but their sin to this equation. This is, salvation is a gift. It is an unmerited favor. And so as a necessary And a logical conclusion of all of this, all of the glory goes to God and God alone, and it goes to him forever. We will spend eternity glorifying God for his graciousness to his people. It is the Father here who is specifically mentioned 
as receiving the glory. We should not wonder if the Son and the Spirit are somehow left out of the eternal glory or that they're maybe somehow lesser beings. When our God, our triune God, performs his external works like creation or redemption, all three members of the Trinity are at work. And they work inseparably and they work in perfect harmony and union. They share one divine will. So when they work, their external works like, say, creation, the pattern that the scripture gives us is to say the Father creates through the Son, or sorry, by the Son, through the Spirit. Or in salvation, we say the Father saves by the Son, through the Holy Spirit. If we think about the Spirit for a moment, the Spirit is God's power within, if you think about Christians, within us, as His people. I say it's His power. The Spirit is, of course, a person. He is a He, scriptures say. He's not, he's not merely a force. And we can summarize the work of the Spirit as glorifying the Son. In John 16, 14, Jesus says that precisely, that the Helper will come and He will glorify me. The Spirit does this by convicting sinners of their sin, revealing the glory of the Son of God, and saving power when a sinner believes in Christ. The Spirit indwells believers and helps us along in our life, gives strength He illuminates us in our understanding. He reminds us of the glory of the Son of God when we read the Scriptures and read of the Son, when we hear the Gospel proclaimed, and when we, again, uh, just rejoice in what the Son has done. The Spirit is the one keeping us and and providing for us and, and carrying us along through our days. The Son, of course, is Savior, He's the one mediator between God and man. He has accomplished this work of redemption in offering himself, as we've just seen. He is the king before whom one day all people will bow. Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And then when the end comes, And all enemies are subjected to Christ. They are all beneath his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the Son will then hand the kingdom over to his sending Father. That God may be all in all, Paul says. The Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son secures man's redemption to the praise of the Father. And in this manner, our triune God is glorified and will be glorified forevermore. The end of all of this is the glory of God. If God just were to make salvation possible, but then it's up to us to contribute to that in some way, cast the deciding ballot or however it might might be said, and often it's maybe not that blatant, but if we add anything to that of our own works, like whether it's ceremonial laws, like we'll see in Galatians, this matter of circumcision, or any moral laws that we need to keep or to contribute, if we're to contribute by our own faithfulness and our own works, if, if, if this comes into this, is, is added to faith as part of the instrument by which we receive salvation, then God's grace 
and his glory ultimately are undermined. We introduce in this way cause for boasting in ourselves, which is explicitly and routinely in the scriptures said to be entirely shut out and out of place if we really do understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read that in Ephesians 2. We also find that in Romans as well. The Judaizers brought in this cause for boasting by denying justification by faith alone. A faith is a passive reception. It is receiving and resting. It is receiving this gift of grace by believing it, by believing in Christ. And it is distinguished in this way from works. And this is what upholds that salvation is truly of God's grace and to the praise of his glory alone and apart from our works. We affirm that such a person who believes will go on to produce good fruit. Paul is going to get to that later in the book of Galatians. But none of that is part of how we receive God's gift of salvation. That is received simply through faith, the gift of God, by believing. Again, by adding circumcision or any other activity as part of the instrument of receiving salvation, this destroys God's grace. It's a different gospel and would, would, would put glory upon us, upon man. God is the one who saves sinners, and he does it freely, and he does it graciously. Justification comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and it is ultimately to the glory of God alone. This is what Paul is out to remind the Galatians of and to remind us of in this book and to uphold. This is the thing that has Paul so animated that as we'll see in in verse 6, he just launches straight into his rebuke of them and his uh, expression of uh, astonishment that they have so quickly abandoned this grace. That they are believing, they are receiving this false teaching. And so as much as we are reminded of the seriousness of what is at stake here, and it's a solemn matter in many ways, and Paul will, will say harsh words to the Galatians in rebuke of them, but what is ultimately at stake and what he's ultimately trying to point the Galatians to and you and I to here is good news. It is a message that when received and believed is one that brings great joy and gladness. Because this is saying that to be forgiven of your sin and justified by God, to have peace with Him, it comes not through your efforts. It's not maintained ultimately, as we will see, even by your best efforts. It is a gift that God gives in His grace to sinners. And it is received by believing, not by doing, not by acting. It is a gift of God's grace. This is a cause then for us to, to, to find rest for our souls. To to especially when you're troubled by your own sinfulness, you, you, you wish there was greater fruitfulness in your life. That the fruit of the Spirit that we'll find later in Galatians would be more overflowing in your life and your 
agonized and pained by your sinfulness, that's real sin, and you feel and you feel it, and you feel the condemning power of the law, and the accusations come to you that you're a miserable wretch, you're a horrible person, you should be past this by now, as if you're still doing this. How long have you believed this? You know better, you know God's law. Where do we turn? Where do we turn in that moment? That we are justified by God's grace as a gift. That we are not earning it. That the, the, the covenant in which we stand, when we believe in Christ Jesus, we are brought into the new covenant in Christ's blood. And it is truly, actually, a covenant of grace. You are not operating under some legal arrangement with God where grace is just the entrance into the Christian life and now, boy, I better just get going and I just am constantly focusing on what I've got to do and what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing. And, and I, if, I, if I do really well, then I have the right to be happy and joyful and glad and I can sing. And then when I've done bad, I need to whip myself and well, I should, probably shouldn't be happy now and joyful. That's legalism. That's relating to God in a legalistic way. And that's not the new covenant. It is one of grace. If you are trusting in Christ, truly you are justified. From the day you believe in Christ till the day you die, you're saved because of what Christ has accomplished. And it's a gift of God's grace to you. Sometimes we want to rush to the fruitfulness part. And of course, there's an important place to, to, to talk about uh, the, 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 the life of the Christian and pursuing holiness, and so on. Can we who live in, uh, uh, sh shall we continue in, in grace that sin may abound? The, the reason, though, Paul anticipates that question in the book of Romans as coming from his adversaries is because the gospel that he has been proclaiming and defending and, and, and proclaiming to the Romans throughout the book until that point is teaching that they, one is justified and accounted righteous purely and solely by faith in Christ Jesus as a gift of God's grace, not through any works at all whatsoever. And so he anticipates that objection that comes. Well, then I guess we just go on sinning because it doesn't really matter at all. And of course, Paul will answer that and we'll see him answer that even in Galatians. But if, we're, if, if when we preach Christ and we preach grace, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you're not accused of antinomianism, then you probably are not preaching the gospel correctly. Because it, it truly is a free salvation given to those who believe in Christ. And so, of course, I would plead with you to make that your hope. To just, to believe in Christ to trust that he has secured and done everything necessary for you to stand before God. Make that your hope. Make that your boast in that alone. And every time you feel the weight of the law, the conviction of your sin, confess that freely to God. And remember what Christ has accomplished for your salvation. Remember that you are in God's covenant of grace with him now because of Christ. It is this that will sustain us. It is this that is the gospel. This is what Paul is, is so adamant about here. 
And this is what the, the assurance that comes from rooting your hope in Christ Jesus is what gets assaulted when we start to add works in various ways. How much faithfulness must I have if that's somehow part of the equation of whether or not I'm going to be, if I'm saved? Look away from that to Christ Jesus. Make him your hope and your boast. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you praise and thanks. Father, there's nothing... My words certainly cannot adequately communicate even what we're talking, what I'm trying to talk about. The goodness of your grace, the kindness of what you have done for sinners in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would help us to hold fast to your, your gracious character, your promises that you justify the ungodly because of what your son has done, that this is grace that you give by just believing Father, I pray that when we come under the condemnation of the law, when we are troubled by our sins, when we are troubled that our repentance is not perfect, that we would be reminded, that you would remind us by your Spirit of this truth, that you save graciously, and that we would be able to lift our heads and proceed with joy, not because we are deluded about thinking that we actually are and our persons maybe righteous enough or good enough, but just so confident in your character and in your promises, in your, the assurance that you will keep your promises, confident that when, when your word tells us that if we are in Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly places now, and that one day in the coming ages, it will all be made manifest and we will experience the fullness of what it is that Christ has purchased that is currently being kept for us, that we are currently awaiting and looking forward to and longing to. I pray that you'd comfort us. Father, I pray that you'd also grant us a compassion for sinners and a desire to proclaim this good news, even though we know that there are those who will find us absurd, that, it would, that you would renew in us a desire to see sinners Believe in Christ and be forgiven. Father, we thank you for the many ways that you are so kind to us. And we give you praise for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.